You're listening to the Sunday podcast from LifePoint Church in Santan Valley, Arizona. We hope you're encouraged by today's message. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. Grab a Bible, open it up to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, we're looking at verses 13 through 25 today. We looked at John chapter 1 last week, and we got to see Jesus turn water into wine, one of the coolest miracles ever. And then we get to follow that up today with Jesus going in, making his own weapon, and then beating people with it. It's fantastic. This is probably the coolest section of Scripture where we get to see Jesus just taking names and, uh, you know, kicking butt. Yeah. Okay. Um, So opening up to John chapter 2, the title of this morning's message is Trust Me. Trust Me. You ever have anybody tell you that? Trust Me. Usually when somebody's saying trust you, you shouldn't trust them, right? If someone says trust me, it's because they're trying to get you to do something in which you do not believe. Like the first time I had somebody serve me cauliflower mashed potatoes. They said, trust me, these taste just like regular mashed potatoes. Indeed, they do not. They taste disgusting, like somebody ground up cauliflower, mixed it with water, and then served it to you. But they said, their words were, trust me. My son uses it all the time. When it's like major life decisions, trust me, Dad. No, you have zero experience in life. Why would I trust you with this decision? Trust me, trust me, trust me, right? Salesman, trust me. Why is it that we throw around the words trust me as much or more than we throw around the words love? Love, right? We've talked about that. I love pie. I love you. I love lamp. Whatever. We just say I love anything that we can. And we use the same thing with trust. And yet if either of those are broken, love or trust, it's completely devastating in our lives, isn't it? And so I want to talk about this today. And I want to talk about this concept of gut does Jesus trust you? (laughs) Of course he does. He's Jesus. He loves me. Slow your horses there because we'll see what the scriptures say here. John chapter 2, 13 through 25, it goes like this. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others were sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. At this moment, the disciples remembered that it was written by the prophets that the Messiah will have a zeal for the house of the father. It will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove you have the authority to do this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? And then now John tells us, the temple that he was speaking of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said at that moment, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, this is where we're going to really focus today. While he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing, and they believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony from mankind, for he knew what was in each person. This is the word of the Lord. Would you bow your heads as we pray? Father, 
As we go through this text today, I truly, truly come before you and ask that you would bring wisdom, that it would just flow out of this place, Lord, that your spirit, like it came down at Pentecost, would just come and bring the truth of this word, Lord, the truth of what it means to trust, to give you our lives, to surrender. In Jesus' name, amen. So, although Jesus deliberately violated man-made laws, and I mean deliberately, he almost purposefully sought out the man-made laws that the Jewish leaders would do, and then he would break them right in front of them, just to be like, this isn't what I said to do. None of this yoke, none of this burden is what I gave you. The burden of the law alone is enough, and yet you've added all of these extra laws to it. And so, one of the cool things is we often look at Jesus as the rebel according to the Jewish people, but the fact of the matter is, he kept his father's laws. That's why he's there in Jerusalem at the Passover in the first place, to observe the feast. So he kept the laws that were originally given. He observed the feast that celebrated the work of Yahweh, but he would not observe man-made rules. He would not observe the selfish rules that the Jewish leaders over time had built in to the law. And so as we see this section here of Jesus coming into Jerusalem, to give you some background and clarity on it, because for me, that always makes the Bible more fun, Jerusalem is a town with about 60 to 80,000 Jews normally living in it, but when it was time for the Passover, there could have been anywhere from 300 to 400,000 people extra would show up to Jerusalem for the Passover feasts, and they would come to the temple, and they would put their sacrifices down. So you can imagine the place got crazy. In fact, it was actually a lot like Santan Valley and the months of November to April when the people from all over Canada and America come and they settle down at the Mecca that is Santan Valley, and we all use Hunt Highway patiently with one another. Amen. 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 So yeah, could you imagine? So imagine that. So we're about 100,000 people here in Santan Valley. I think I heard an estimate of somewhere around 20,000 come down in this region during the November to April period. Now imagine 300 to 400,000, right? It'll make you grateful tomorrow morning when you go and you're like, there are not 300,000 people out here right now. And so that's what happened in Jerusalem. So what the leaders there at the temple and the priests would do is they knew that people coming in would need the, uh, the goats, the bulls, the doves in order to offer their sacrifices. And so as a convenience, they would sell them there or they would change money. And what started out as a convenient thing to do for the people who were coming in for the festival of Passover turned into a money-making scheme turned into something where the greed of man, the deceit of man's hearts took over, and in the temple courts where the Jewish priests should have been interacting there in Jerusalem with the Gentiles, teaching them about Yahweh, it was now just a massive greed money-making market. It looked no different than the world's markets. It looked no different than the other markets around Jerusalem. It had become just like the world. Does that make sense? The thing that was supposed to be meant for ministry man had turned it into just another opportunity to make money. And this is why Jesus is so upset. But I want you to see something, because this is often talked about, you know, the anger of Jesus, the zeal, the passion of Jesus as he flips over tables, is he never destroys the property. Isn't that interesting? He sends the goats and the bulls out. He talks, he talks to the people who own the doves, and he says, get them out of here. He doesn't let them go. He doesn't destroy the property of the people. There's a respect and a grace there that he just tells them to leave and then reminds them the purpose of the place that he is standing, shows them the respect that they have lost and reinstills it in them. Just a fascinating thought. 
As we get to the end of this section of scripture here, the end of chapter 2, John's going to remind us of something incredibly important. That while in Jerusalem is where he really begins to just pour out miracles and pour out love and really his ministry, his speaking ministry, his miracle ministry begins here. Remember last week, the water and the wine, he hadn't done any miracles yet, that's his first miracle. He was not invited to the wedding as Jesus, the great rabbi and teacher, he was Mary's son and his buddies. That's who was invited to the wedding, Mary's son and his buddies, the disciples. And now, though, as this time in Passover has been going on, he's been doing miracles. He's been spending time in the public. He's been teaching these words that everyone can't believe the wisdom he has. And we get to this section where John reminds us here that he says, while in Jerusalem, all of these people saw these signs and they were believing, and this is so fascinating, they weren't just believing in God, They weren't believing in Jewish Yahweh, so to speak. What's it say? They believed in his name. Now, that's a pretty deep belief. That's a belief that says this man, this carpenter, this Jesus actually is God. And we have seen the miracles and we have heard him speak and we believe in the name of Jesus. If somebody says that today, we clap and we stand up and we shout for him. We just did with the man from Haiti. We said, amen. He believes in the name of Jesus. What's the next verse say? Jesus would not trust himself to them because he knew all people. Does Jesus trust you, pumpkin? The answer is no. He sure does not. What? That's not nice. You're right. It's not nice. It's justice. It's not nice. He does not trust you. Why doesn't he trust me? Because he knows exactly who you are. He knows all of those thoughts. He knows all of those feelings and those emotions. He knows all of the deceit and the dishonor in your heart. He knows every single little thing. He knows when you present yourself one way, but you're really feeling another. He knows about it. He knows that when she asks if the dress fits too tight, what you're really thinking. He knows all of it. He knows. Nothing's hidden from him. And so this word is so wild. You have this crowd going, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Just like last night, only they were going, Garth, Garth. (laughs) Oh, I know, I know all of you, and I'm glad you're here. Good for you. But that's what it was like. Tens of thousands of people are now hearing about him. We're talking hundreds of thousands of, of devout Jews are seeing this Messiah and hearing the stories as it begins to spread amongst the people at the Passover, oh my word, this man is healing the lame, the blind and the deaf. He's doing unreal things right in front of us. And they were going, Jesus. They were shouting his name. And John says they believed in the name of Jesus, and yet Jesus didn't trust a single one of them. What? What? How is that possible? I bet Garth felt great last night having tens of thousands of people be like, Garth, Garth. Think about it. Jesus said, nope. And then it says, because he did not need the testimony of man, because he already knew what was in each person. And that's something for you and I. That's just a little word, a little nugget for you and I that when the testimony of man comes to you and tries to tell you who you are, you need to say, no, I already know who I am. There's a testimony of my father, and that's who tells me who I am. 
So you can call me loser, weak, skinny, fat, ugly, dumb, whatever you want. And my, I don't trust that word. That word is a lie. I know who I am. Jeremiah. Jeremiah 17.9 says this. The heart is deceitful above all things. <gasps> How dare you, Jeremiah? No. You can't say that. Humans are good at the core, right? The heart is deceitful above all things. It is beyond cure. <gasps> it's terminal? You mean the deceit's going to kill me? It will destroy you, yes. In fact, he closes, who can understand it? Our world loves to think, and it's so popular right now, as we're all progressive Americans in 2019, we're all such modern people, that at the heart of man, we are all good. You've heard that, I'm sure. We are all good, and we are just affected by negative situations that happen in our lives, but at the heart of each person, you're good. Well, this is going to hurt some of you. That's not true. That's a lie. Even the children in this room. Oh, they're so cute. And they're precious, and they're sweet, and they're evil. Just absolutely <laughs> deceitful, terrible creatures. I'm sorry to have to be the one to tell you that, but it's true. And there's no cure for your deceit. There's no cure for it. Jeremiah the prophet said, from the heart flows all evil and deceit, and there is no cure. Who can possibly understand it? That's why Jesus comes and speaks to that exact thing, and he says, I am the cure for that which is incurable. I am the cure. Come and follow me. And then Jesus says, will you trust me? There's those words. Will you trust me? You see, this is so different than what the world is telling us. The world says that you're all basically good and we need to find that inner goodness. You need to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and you need to just work hard and face your fears and overcome. And you know what? While you're doing it, bring Jesus with you. While you're doing it, bring him aboard. It can't hurt. He's a nice guy. He taught to love your neighbor. He taught to give Caesar what Caesar's. He taught to be kind to those who aren't kind to you. Yeah, bring him on. Come on, fella. We're going on this trip, and I want you to come with me, Jesus. Garbage. That's what that is. It's garbage. But here's the thing, that is being preached in the church, and that is the message of the church, is I'm going to invite Jesus to be a part of my story to help me be the best that I can be. And Jesus looks and says, no thanks. Nah, that's not what I'm signing up for. That's not what I'm asking for. See, here's the deal. You may look at a house, and on the outside, the house looks great, Right? Paint's nice, windows are intact, the door shuts and locks, the roof looks good. It's got air conditioning that appears to be working, and from the outside, the house looks great. And I can tell you our first house that we bought was very similar to this. From the outside, it looked fine. It had all the stuff a house is supposed to have, doors and windows, and most of them weren't cracked, and they were all there. And this is in 2006, so the market was crazy. It was booming. You were lucky to get into anything under $300,000. And so in order to do that in a neighborhood that we wanted to be in, we bought the crack house. And I don't mean that metaphorically. I mean literally, we bought the house where they made crack. And uh, 
it was disgusting and it smelled and they for some reason did not feel the need to let their dogs do their business outside but inside on the carpet. And so that had soaked in along with the crack and had basically created a place that was absolutely disgusting. But it's what we could afford and it was still nearly $200,000 and it was at a time when you didn't get to negotiate and ask the previous owner to fix things up. They just said, take it or leave it. Someone else will come and buy it if you won't. And so we, being young 20-year-old suckers, said, we'll take it. And uh, long story short, we ended up gutting the place all the way down to the foundation and mostly the studs and rebuilt it completely back up, redid wiring and plumbing and all sorts of things. But the thing is this, if you just looked at the house from the outside, it looked fine. Sure, it needed a little paint and it wasn't pretty, but it had grass and trees and it looked like a house. It looked fine. But man, I can remember the first time we got into those walls, especially the plum wall, the one that shared the plumbing from the kitchen to the two bathrooms. That was special because, <laughs> you see, there was a little substance in construction that we call black mold. And I don't mean like a little spot of it. I mean, it was thriving. It was thriving inside the wall, up to the ceiling, all the way along. And then when I went to hit out one of the, one of the pieces of wood, uh, I mean, when I went to hit out the drywall, knock it out, three pieces of wood went with the drywall because termites had eaten out the wood so much that you could just push the wall over. This place is special, and it still holds such a special place in my heart. While I was up in the attic, starting to do new wiring, I found a wire that was just sitting up there, and I grabbed it because it was a wire that was just sitting up there, and there's no way it's hot. Why would there be any electricity going to a wire that is just sitting up here? It indeed was hot, and I grabbed it, and that was fun. That also was special. Why do I tell you all this? I tell you all of this because the fact is, we all come to church and we all go about our daily lives showing everybody the outside of our house. Everything's fine. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I'm fine. Everything's good. See, the paint's up there. The door's shut. The windows look nice. Nobody walked in these doors today wearing a sign that said, I cheated this week. Nobody walked in wearing a sign that said, I stole things from work this week. I struggled with lust and temptation this week. Nobody shared the things that are in the deepest parts of them, what's in the walls of the foundation of your home and your heart. You didn't share that. We just present the house, the front. And this is what Jesus knew about the condition of the human heart. This is what he knew And so when he has tens of thousands of people chanting his name, saying, we believe that you are the son of the living God, his heart broke because he could see past their inside of their house right into the walls to the mold and the rot and the waste, and he could see what their true intentions were. In Acts 1, when the Holy Spirit comes down on that upper room, how many people were in that upper room? Do you know the number? 120. 120. It's estimated that Jesus preached and spoke and encountered and touched the lives of, either through stories or through people seeing him or hearing him, more than 1.4 million people. And in the upper room, after his death, burial, and resurrection, there were only 120 there who said, I trust 
and I believe. But I trust that he still is the son of God. 120. So this morning, I want to talk about this concept and this idea of allowing God to be more than just king of the world. You see, I think most people are okay with the idea of Jesus being king. I think unbelievers are okay with the idea of Jesus being king. I mean, he was a nice guy. He did lots of nice things. He helped the poor. He was like a Robin Hood. He helped the poor. He healed the sick. He took the people that the rest of the world said were worthless or were broken or were beyond any sort of repair, and he made them popular, and he made them cool and famous. So yeah, I like this Jesus. Let's, let's bring him in. Let's let him be king of the world. The Jews wanted him to be king of the world so he could get rid of the Roman oppressors. They were tired of being under the thumb of Rome, and they said, man, we're looking for a king that will come in and overthrow this unjust Roman empire. And you know what? We're still doing the same thing today. Christians in America are like, man, if only Jesus could come down. If only Jesus could come down and he could kick out the Republicans and the Democrats and he could run our government and everything would be awesome. He could go into the hospitals and he would just touch people and they'd be healed. Heck, he wouldn't even need to go and he could just speak the words and they'd be healed. You know what? He could get rid of all the inflation and the wage problems we have going on. If Jesus was there, everyone would get $22 an hour. He would get rid of taxation and the problem we have with that. They tax our money when it comes into our bank accounts, and they tax us on stuff that we purchase. It's called double taxation. It's actually against our Constitution. I'm not going to get into that. But the point is, <laughs> Jesus could fix it. He could fix it. He'd build medical clinics. He'd heal people. The schools would be full of smart, smart children. You see, we want Jesus to come and be king of the world. But we don't want him to come and be king of our lives. Because if I make him king of my life, well, now that's a little different than accommodating him, isn't it? You don't just accommodate the king. The king comes in and changes everything to the way the king wants it to be. The king's not going to come in and take the room you've given him and say, you know what, Jesus, I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to let you change the color of paint in this room of my life. I'll let you hang some bookshelves too and some shiplap if you need to. Whatever you want, Jesus. And Jesus begins to just take a wrecking ball to that room. And you're like, whoa, this is not what I agreed to. You're just here to accompany me on my journey to being a better person. Jesus is like, forget that. If I don't wreck everything and rebuild it from the foundation up, I'm out. Then you don't actually trust me. You don't actually believe in who I say I am. And you believe in a false version of me. When it's at the end of the day, the people who saw Jesus do his miracles, as they always do, once the miracles ran out or the time went on or they saw his execution, they said, we're out. Or they heard his words, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they said, no thanks, we're out. As soon as the miracles were gone, the people and the faith were gone which is how Jesus was a quick test to see who actually believed, who actually trusted in him, and who was just there for the show. I want to put this before you right now. That there are a lot of people, and I think there are people in this room, who are just with Jesus for the show. You're here for the miracles. You're here for the fellowship, the community. You're here for culture, you're here because your parents were here, you're here because at the end of the day, what else are you going to do, become a Buddhist? And so you're here. 
I want to encourage you this morning. This morning is about encouraging you to something greater than that, okay? What does it mean to be God? <laughs> what does it mean to be God? Now, if I asked you that question, we would all say, well, I don't know, I'm not God. No, then why do we act like it? Then why do we act like we're God? Why do we make decisions about our future and about other things in life and our destiny and dreams as if we are God? I've been into cars lately and four-wheel drive. Sorry you're having to hear it this way, Christy, but watching these videos on people buying old junkers and then fixing them up, and I'm like, yes. <laughs> and I know it can't happen, so I'm not going to buy anything. <laughs> I'm going to buy something. Just don't. Um, no, I'm not, I'm not going to buy. I'm just kidding, by the way. Jeez, it got real tense in there. I'm not buying anything. But these people build these old cars, they get to put the wheels on them they want, the engines in them they want, they get to design the car to be a rock crawler, or to be a racer, or to go over the whoops in the desert, whatever, they get to design it, build it, they create it, and the car does and is whatever they want it to be, because they created it. And you and I treat this body, this life and mind as if we created it. And it's gonna, I'm gonna be who I wanna be. I'm not happy in this marriage, I need to pursue my dreams. I'm not happy in this occasion or this situation or my kids. I need to go do something that makes me happy and lets me fulfill my dreams. And we look at this life and we invite Jesus along for the ride to accompany us in this life as if we somehow understand the creation better than the creator. Rather than going to him and saying, you created me, what is my purpose? You created me, how do I work? What is it that I'm to do? How have you built me? You see the difference? We think we are God. We think we are small gods unto ourselves, and we can't imagine a life where we're not in control or we're not looked after. We can't imagine a life where we completely let go of control and let go of the fear and the worry and anxiety of what could happen and actually trust our Creator. And so most Christians... Most American Christians, I will tell you right now, invite God to accompany them in this life. And you have not invited God to come in and just wreck your whole world. Because here's the thing about when you invite God to wreck your whole world. We worked on that house for about six months. We only had about a month before we had to move in, so when we moved in, we didn't have floors in certain places, we didn't have countertops, we... Uh, didn't have much furniture at certain times. There was drafty in one room because the windows were still broken and cracked. And we spent the next three, four, five months working on it and building it. And it was hard. And that month of working on it was hard because I was in school full time and working full time. My wife was working full time. And we were working from like 10 o'clock till one in the morning on the house every night. And it was difficult. But I can tell you this, we lived in that house for six years. I couldn't imagine a single day living in the house the way it was when we bought it. I couldn't imagine raising my son in the house the way we did. I was grateful every single day for the remodel and the changes. I was grateful for knowing that the house wasn't going to burn down because of the electrical. I was grateful for knowing that we weren't going to die because of the mold that was in there. I was grateful to know that all of the hard work, all of the pain, blood, sweat, tears, literally, not metaphorically, that we put into that house... I was so grateful for that house. 
but it took all of the pain and all of the remodel and all of the broken walls and smashed thumbs and tearing up carpet out of the bathroom. Who puts carpet in the bathroom? If you have that, I'm sorry. I don't mean to judge, but stop. Don't put carpet in the bathroom. It's an interesting thing. All of it was worth it. And I'm telling you, your life, if you expect a relationship with Jesus to come without him coming in and knocking down walls and making you uncomfortable and bringing some discomfort and pain, you are being preached to about a false Jesus. You're being lied to. And so here's why I am so passionate about this. Here's why I have not let this alone through the whole beginning of John is that when Christian men and women stand on a stage and have a pulpit given to them where tens of thousands of people sit and take their words as gospel truth and they preach a Jesus Christ who only wants to give you your best life, who only wants to give you good things, who only wants to come alongside you and be your homeboy, they would be better off to shut their mouth than to keep on preaching because they are leading people down a path that is not Jesus Christ. They are leading you into a false sense of security, a false sense that says, I know Jesus, I believe in his name. Well, good. So did every other person there in Jerusalem. They all believed in the name of Jesus. And all of them fell away and turned away. When the rubber hit the road, not a single one of them trusted him. Not a single one of them trusted him. So how do we apply this? And this is how we'll close here. How do we apply this? Most of us, when we think about going into the moldy areas of our life and the painful areas and the dark areas of our life, we don't want to. You know that the human mind is so incredible that it can actually take painful areas of your past and block them out? You can actually forget that they even ever even happen. That's how incredible your mind is. And so we don't want to go behind the walls. We don't want to open up that wall and see what's going to come out of there. That's the last thing we want to do. And so what we do is we invite Jesus into our hearts and we say, Jesus, would you help what's behind that wall? And he's like, I'm going to need to open it up. We're like, no, 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 no. Just fix it without opening it up. He's like, I need to open it up. No, no, don't do that. No, you know what, Jesus? I'll go fix it. I'll go fix it. You stay there. And we just sort of go over to the area. We pour bleach around the wall and we go, there, it's all done. And now we just have a giant bleach pile and we have a bigger mess than we started with. That's what we do. You remember the movie Home Alone? They leave little Kevin home at age eight all by himself and he's afraid to go down in the basement because it's got that big scary furnace. But what's he do? Kevin overcomes his fears because there's two bad men who are trying to break into his house and um, I guess kill him? I don't know. They're pretty evil guys. But they're stupid guys, right? And so he faces his fears and he goes down into the basement and he sets up all sorts of traps and he pulls himself up by his bootstraps, love that American terminology, and he faces his fears head on. That's not what Jesus is asking you to do. Because here's the thing, sin isn't like a couple of bumbling idiot crooks. Sin is more like a SEAL team that is waiting and crouching at your door to devour you. Isn't that what God said to Cain in Genesis 4? Cain, why is your face so downtrodden? Why are you so jealous of your brother? Don't you know that sin is crouching at your door and it is waiting to devour you? Cain, will you let me help you? 
Do you know that Jesus offered that? That God offered that kind of opportunity to Cain before he killed his brother? Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Let me help you. Cain said, no, I'll deal with this myself. So here's the thing. I don't want you to think you can leave here today and deal with this yourself or fix it or just face your fears. God isn't asking you to do that. He's saying, let me come alongside you. Let me help you. Because here's the deal. You don't have the cure to do it by yourself. You need me. I have the cure. Will you trust me to give it to you? Will you trust that when it hurts and when I'm not answering you, I'm doing what is best for you? Will you trust that I will never leave nor forsake you? And when you think I've forsaken you because I have not answered your request the way you want, will you trust that I have not answered because I know what's best for you? This is deep stuff, right? Holy cow. Will you trust me, son or daughter, to that level? That's what he's calling you and I into. It's much different. It doesn't, maybe you don't leave here today feeling empowered or energized. I'm not asking you to trade money for a blessing. That's why I love what Jordan said up here today. Offering, tithes and offering, the church, it's not about your stinking money. It's about the joy of the Father's heart. It's about having so much love for him that you just give back out of the joy from your heart. I love that. I'm saying the same thing here today. I'm not saying that this is a way to get into God's good graces. I'm saying this is the very thing of God's grace. And if you have a relationship where you don't trust Jesus, you don't trust that he is who he says he was, you don't trust that he will be there and guard you and to guard you and guide you through this life, then I'm I put this out there. I don't know if you have a relationship with Jesus. I don't know. I don't know your heart. All I get to see is the front of your house. That's all I get to see up here. And it's beautiful. But I don't know your heart. I don't know your life beyond these walls. I don't know when you leave these doors if you actually trust him or not. And so I speak these words today of encouragement to encourage you to get on your knees before God and say, God, I have asked you to accompany, in my, accompany me in my life. And I think that for years I have wanted you to accompany me. But God, today I realize I need you to come in and wreck my life. And I need you to take complete control. That song we sang, I Surrender All, do you? Do you surrender all? today to him let's pray father just give us a moment Lord take a moment with the Lord and just all week you'll have all week to spend on life and family and work and right now just give this moment to the Lord Lord, I believe and I know right now in my heart there are men and women in here where your spirit, Lord, just as in Pentecost, has come down upon them and they are just being stirred and moved right now. You're showing them right now that you have accompanied them in this life and you're asking to be Lord of their lives, King of their lives. 
If that's you right now, if that's what God's doing to you right now, I encourage you, right wherever you're at, you start talking to him. I can't do it for you. He won't do it for you. You're not a puppet. He gives you the choice and the option, the freedom to say yes to him or no to him. But if you want to today, I pray you would pray that prayer. God, come in and wreck my world. I have built a safety net around you. I have used you for your miracles and for the hope of heaven, but I have never put my trust in you. I have called myself a Christian, but I have never put my full trust in you. Lord, today I do that. I ask you to come into the places of my heart, the places of the home of my heart, and to reveal the areas, Lord, that are unhealthy in me. And I ask you to extract the things in my life which are causing all sorts of troubles as far as addiction, pain, and I trust you in the process, Lord. I trust you in the process, Lord. Father, as there are men and women who have prayed that prayer here today, Lord, as a church, would we, be, would we gather around them? Help us. Lord, as a church, help the men and women in here who have said that prayer, who have prayed that prayer a long time ago, who have lived it out in their lives to come alongside. Would you give words of wisdom to men and women in this room of people they need to come alongside this week and they need to sit down with them, have coffee with them, share with them, talk with them. You are not alone in this journey. You are not alone in this journey. Praise you, Jesus. We're going to take communion here. And again, I just encourage you. We've got about five more minutes. We'll take communion and we'll close in worship. Don't rush this time. Don't wish this time away. In about 10 minutes total, you will be off this property to do whatever you want for the rest of the week. But for the next few minutes here, don't leave his presence. We're going to have communion open, three stations up front and three in the back. And if you have a relationship with Jesus at any time here, you can get up and grab the two cups that are stacked on top of one another and go back to your seat and partake of communion. I just encourage you, don't leave this moment. If God's working in your heart, if God's revealing stuff to you and you want to pray with somebody, you want to come forward, you want to just kneel at the altar, do that. You have all week to just sit and do nothing. If God is calling you right now, then do something. Then move in that call. Say, I trust you, Lord. I move forward with you, Lord. When Jesus broke bread with his disciples in that upper room on the night that he was betrayed, he took it and he told them, this is my body. This is what I was talking about when there were 10,000 people gathered around me in the field. And I told them that if you were to follow me, you must eat my flesh. Well, take a piece of it, Simon. Take a piece of it, Andrew, John, Philip, Nathaniel, Judas. <laughs> take a piece of it. This is my body. And then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you gather together, you take these two elements and you remember me and you remember what I do here. And would it be a reminder to you of where to place your trust?
So I'm going to pray and bless this. And at any point over the next few minutes, you can get up, go to one of the stations, and we'll close in worship. Heavenly Father, we bless the bread and the juice now, your body and your blood, the divinity of the Almighty God and the person of Jesus Christ. I don't have words for it, but to fall before you and say thank you and to take this time and reinstate my trust in you, Lord. You have my all in my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and you can go now and we'll close in worship.